Um, see, it seems to me that, that it is quite easy, isn't it, to feel discouraged. Don't, don't you think? I, I find it quite, I'm quite easily discouraged. Admittedly, um, I'm not the most patient person in the world. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I find it easy to feel discouraged by things. Maybe you do as well. For, for example, um, uh, we might start doing something at home or maybe at work, something like that. Um, something we think is going to be fairly straightforward, uh, something we're quite enthusiastic about, um, and then it turns out to be harder than we thought it was going to be. Uh, it's more frustrating. It takes longer uh, than we originally thought, and we get discouraged by that, don't we? Oh, um, It's probably made worse by the fact that we, we live in a culture that celebrates the instant, so we, we're not, we want everything now. Um, uh, we, we've got used to instant communication and, and instant information and instant credit and, even worse, instant coffee. Um, so, you know, um, <laughs> and, that, and that, of course, increases our impatience, doesn't it, with, with things that take time or things that, that don't come easy. And I, I reckon we're not immune from that in the church uh, either, are we? we? We want those we witness to to be instantly converted. We want ourselves and our church families to be instantly sanctified. Uh, we can quickly get discouraged when it doesn't happen as quickly as, as we think it should. Um, I think discouragement is a, is a regular struggle for us. And, and when we feel discouraged, of course, the temptation then comes to, to want to give up, doesn't it? Um, and and, and that, that's, that's often our experience, of course. And it seems to be the experience of God's people here in Jerusalem back in 520 BC, where, where Haggai chapter 2 is set. They are discouraged and they're tempted to give up. Um, I, think that's what's, I think that's what's going on. Um, they're discouraged and they're tempted to give up. And I think we can identify with that feeling readily enough, can't we? So, so let's have a look at, at what happens when God's people want to give up. I think that's the situation here, when God's people want to give up. If you remember from last week, the, the temple uh, in Jerusalem, the one that King Solomon uh, had built hundreds of years earlier, that had been destroyed. It was destroyed back in 587 BC, courtesy of the Babylonian Empire, who they, they'd invaded Judah. They, they'd not only destroyed the temple and the city, but they'd also carted off uh, many of the people into exile uh, as well. This, of course, was God's judgment on them for their sin, their disobedience. But actually, he'd also promised them that he would bring them home from exile uh, as well. And, and God was faithful to his promise. And, and eventually, 536 BC, this was that the people were able to return uh, to, to their land, whereupon they started rebuilding the the temple again but not for long because there was there was opposition to the work and so they stopped actually within days or weeks of of having started uh, and the stoppage continued for for around 16 years uh, until this guy Haggai uh, God's prophet came along he preached the message from God that we heard in chapter one last week which was basically kind of sort out your priorities and get on with the job wasn't it um, and the result, uh, uh, verses 14 and 15 of chapter 1, was that they did just that. They came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. In other words, the rebuilding work started again. End of chapter 1. But now, as we come to the end of chapter 2, we are less than a month later from where chapter 1 ended, and we can see that already the people are tempted to give up again. And, 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 you know, it's not even as though they'd done a month's work on the temple in that time. Because the 21st day of the seventh month, verse 1, 
is actually towards the end of the Feast of Tabernacles, which is kind of a major Jewish festival. So these guys had effectively been on like a Christian convention for at least some of the last month. You know, you know what those things are like, don't you? Um, they're, they're kind of like spiritual high point, if you like, great singing and Bible teaching and fellowship and, and, and what have you. But it's not exactly conducive to getting the temple built. Is it? But, but now kind of festival season is over and, and they're looking at the work ahead of them and they're getting discouraged because this is a huge project in, in front of them. So, Solomon's temple, the, the, the one that this new one was replacing, that was magnificent. And yet what they were looking at as, as they looked at the, the rebuild in front of them was, was kind of somewhere between a bomb site and a building site. The place was in ruins. The place had no doubt been sort of looted and fly-tipped for the last 16 years as well. And, and what made it worse was that some of the people there, a, a few of the, the, the more elderly people, could actually remember what it had looked like before, some 60-odd years earlier, and that what they were building to replace it was not a patch on, on what it was. And, and Haggai, God's prophet, kind of picked up that this was how God's people were feeling. Have a look at verse 3. Um, then, uh, no, wrong chapter, verse 3. Um, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes, do you see? Uh, as God's people were starting to rebuild, they could sort of picture in their minds what it used to look like. And they're thinking to themselves, this is never going to be uh, like it was back, back, back when Solomon built it. You know, what, what we're building here is going to look so kind of Mickey Mouse in, in comparison. It, it's going to be a, a long, hard slog uh, ahead of us to, to be able to build anything out of this, this bomb site. And even if we can build something, it's hardly going to be built, you know, with finest cedar wood and overlaid with gold like Solomon's temple was. This is going to be like, you know, chipboard and veneer, um, you know, because we are not a wealthy regional superpower like we were in Solomon's day. We're just a handful of sort of returning exiles coming back to an obscure outpost of the, the Persian Empire. We've, we've got nothing. So, so whatever we build is, is going to be completely naff in, in comparison with what Solomon built. So we might as well just give up now. You know, what's the point? You see, the people are discouraged and, and they're feeling like they want to give up. And, and Haggai has sort of picked up that this is how they're feeling. And, of course, we can identify with how they're feeling as well, can't we? In, in fact, you know, maybe you're here this morning and you're feeling a bit, a bit like that. Um, you know, uh, maybe you went home after last Sunday, after, after chapter one, you know, having heard God's call to reshape our priorities around him and his plans and seek first the kingdom of God. And, and maybe you went home with a kind of, you know, like a fresh resolve, a fresh passion to, to do just that. But then as you come back this week, it's just seven days later, but already you feel like you've completely failed to do that. You know, my resolve to read God's word has failed. My resolve to pray has failed. My resolve to be a good witness in my workplace has failed. And I'm struggling already, and I'm tempted to give up already. It's only been a week, but already I can feel, you know, my, my resolve waning, uh, my, my passion to serve waning. Um, I, I, how on earth am I going to do this if I can't even do it for a week? Friends, if that's how we're feeling this morning, 
like God's people here in, in Haggai 2, discouraged, tempted to give up. Well, actually, the rest of this passage is here to strengthen us. Because the, the big message of the rest of this passage is that even though we may feel weak and disheartened and, and tempted to give up, God will not give up on his people and he won't give up on his purposes. So let's have a look at both of those two things. Firstly, in verses uh, 4 and 5, God will not give up on his people. Look, look at what Haggai says uh, in verse 4. Uh, Yet now, be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Do, do, do you see there three times he says, be strong. In other words, kind of take heart and, and don't give up, but, but keep working. So is this like a, you know, is this like a pep talk? Um, you yeah, know, go on, you can do it, that, that kind of thing. Just believe in yourself, that, that, that kind of thing. You know, is, is God just telling them to have self-belief? You know, that's quite a modern mantra at the moment, isn't it? Well, well no, actually, this is way more than that because you'll notice that he gives Uh, He gives concrete reasons for encouraging them to be strong. Uh, And you can see the first reason, look in verse 4, and it's because of God's promise. Be strong, all you people of the land, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. So he's kind of taking them back in, in their history there, isn't he? Back further into the Old Testament to, to when God's people were, were brought out of their slavery in, in Egypt at the time of the Exodus. You might remember that. Um, it was a very difficult time for them, of course, wasn't it? As they sort of wandered around in the wilderness, slowly making their way to the land that, that God had promised them. But all through that time, through, through whatever they faced on that journey, all those times when they wished that they'd stayed in Egypt, do you remember that? Um, God had promised that he would be with them. And verse 5 calls that a covenant promise. In other words, not a promise that can be sort of easily ignored or, or, or forgotten or dispensed with. But, but a, a covenant is like a permanent binding commitment that God will never be separated from his people. And, and what God promised his people at the time of the Exodus from Egypt is what he says to his people here in Haggai's time as well that God will never be separated from his people. No, no, no matter how weak or sinful or, or discouraged they might be, I am with you, declares the Lord. Um, I was thinking about a, a, a parent with a, a toddler. You know, to, toddlers just love running off, don't they? You, probably noticed that it's not rocket science is it? they love to run off so so what do you do when you've got to cross a busy road with sort of fast moving traffic you make sure you are with them don't you you grab them tight and and even if they wriggle you won't let them go and kind of you know wander off and play with the traffic no no, no your hand is it might as well be welded to theirs mightn't it because there's no way that you are going to let them go because there's, there's, there's a bond between you, isn't there, with a parent and a child. And, and that's the kind of thing that he's got in mind in, in verse 5 where it talks about God's covenant promise to his people. I am with you, 
declares the Lord. And and that is regardless of how inadequate or or disheartened they may feel as his people. But but if you look at the end of verse 5, that they're given another reason to be strong, which is not only about God's promise, but about his presence. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. And, and, and again, I think we're being taken back to the Exodus story there uh, again of, of God's people leaving Egypt, traveling through the wilderness to the, the land that God had promised them. A journey uh, during which, if, if you remember, they were given, weren't they, a constant symbol of God's presence in their midst as they traveled. Do you remember a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night to remind them in a very visible way at 24-7 that God wasn't remote from them. He hadn't abandoned them. He was traveling with them in their midst every moment of every day as they journeyed to the promised land. He was in their midst. And, And that's what God's promising his people here in Haggai's day as well, that by his spirit, he will remain in the midst of his people. He won't be remote or absent from them. Or, or he won't be simply with them in some kind of sort of vague or, or ethereal kind of way. You know, we, we might say, you know, I'm, I'm with you in spirit. By, by which we, we mean kind of, I'm on your side. Something like that. But, but we're not actually with them. That's not what God is saying here. He's getting them to look back to the tangible symbol of God's 24-7 presence with his people in the wilderness. And he's saying, I'm in your midst just like I was back then. Did you see? Friends, of course, the the truth that we're, we're being told there is that God's presence remains with God's people. That that was true at the Exodus. It, it was true in Haggai's day. And friends, it's just as true now in our day. God still says to his people now, I'm with you. Now, of course, we, we, might, uh, we might respond to that and say, yeah, but I'm a failure. You know, I'm, I'm a sinner. Yeah, yes, at my, at my best, um, uh, the, the desire of my heart is to please God and serve God. But, you know, I fail at that all the time. My performance as a Christian is, is rubbish. You know, if I were God, even I would give up on me. You know, give me the boot. It's very easy to look at ourselves, look at our performance and think that God should just dispense with his people, dispense with me. But that isn't how God works, is it? God doesn't dispense with his people. But instead, he gives the son, his son, the name Emmanuel, God with us. And he sends him into the world that first, Christ, that first Christmas in order to take all of that sin. It's what he did on the cross, isn't it? He took our sin on himself and took the punishment that our sin deserves so that we might know forgiveness and peace and new life and the assurance of God's love. Do you see? God says to his people, I am with you even though you've sinned. But, of course, we might also respond, say, well, I'm, I'm so weak. You know, I'd, I'd love to... I'd love to live for Christ. I'd love to serve Christ. But, do you know, I've just got so many struggles, so many setbacks, so many obstacles in my life. I'm not sure if I can keep going. You know, I, I feel ready to give up most of the time. You know, it's like um, if, if the Christian life is a race, you know, like Hebrews 12 says, well, I'm not the Mo Farah guy in the lead pack up the front. You know, I'm the guy who's puffed out just putting his trainers on. <laughs> 
I don't know if I'll be able to keep going. Did you feel that sometimes? Uh, spiritually, I mean, not. <laughs> Do you feel that? Like we can't keep going. I can't keep praying. I can't keep serving God. I can't keep living for him. And yet we see here that God didn't only send his son to take the sin of his people, but he sent his spirit to dwell in the midst of his people. Do you see his spirit dwells in the midst of his people to strengthen us in the midst of our weakness? That's what the Apostle Paul tells us in the New Testament as well, isn't it? Romans 8, 26. The spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't even know what we ought to pray for, he says. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us. Do you see, there we are in our weakness and we're struggling to pray and maybe ready to give up praying. What's the point? I'm just such a rubbish Christian. I don't even know what to pray for. Well, God sends his Spirit to help us in our weakness, to strengthen us and keep us going when we feel like giving up. You see, God gives his promise and his presence He says to us, I'm I'm with you and I'm dwelling among you. I'm in the midst of you by my spirit. God doesn't give up on any of his people. However sinful we are, however frail we are, however weak we might be feeling, which, friends, is great news, isn't it? Maybe you're here this morning and uh, you know you're struggling in your Christian life. And maybe you feel that God ought to give up on you. Well, friend, this passage reminds us that he never will. He will never give up on any of his people. Or or, or perhaps you're here this morning and you know that you're not quite there yet as as one of God's people. Um, And and maybe you're fearful that if you were to, to give yourself to Christ, you'd never be able to keep it up. Well, again, this passage tells us that we don't have to keep it up that actually God will give us the strength that we need. For he is with his people, he's dwelling among his people, and he'll never give up on you. He never will. So even though we may feel tempted to give up, verses 1 to 3, God will not give up on his people, verses 4 and 5. But if we now look at the the, the rest of that that section there, verses 6 to 9, we're we're going to be reminded not, not only that God will not give up on his people, but that God will not give up on his purposes. Now, um, these verses are a little bit more, uh, they take a little bit more unraveling, um, but we can do that quite quickly, I think. Um, but, but we need to unravel them so that before we apply them to ourselves, we can see, first of all, what they meant in Haggai's time. Because as we've seen, God's purpose here in, in Haggai's day, God's purpose was to rebuild the temple. And, and, and what we see here in these verses is that God will make sure that this happens. He won't give up on his purposes. So how is that going to happen? Well, have a look at verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. So so what does that mean? Well, it seems to mean that God is going to shake. He's going to shake the whole universe, the heavens and the earth. And he's going to shake the nations, verse 7, 
so that all the treasures of the nations, or if you've got an NIV there, it says the desire of the nations. In other words, that which the nations desire, what they think is precious, shall come in in order that God's house, his temple, will be filled with his glory. So, so the picture here, I, I think, is one of, one of God kind of treating the wealth of the world's nations, you know, what they desire, a, a, bit, a bit like his piggy bank. Um, and he's going to pick it up, and he's going to turn it upside down, he's going to give it a good shake, so that some of that wealth that the world so desires sort of falls out for the building of his temple. That's, that's the picture, I think. Because, after all, verse 8, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. In, in other words, e- even though these, these treasures are the desire of the nations, it's all God's anyway. And, and so he's going to shake the cosmos and he's going to shake the nations, kind of like his piggy bank, and he's going to use what's his to build his temple. Um, And and that's significant, isn't it? Because remember that the old temple had been built by Solomon, who had thrown riches at it, gold and jewels and cedar and and whatnot. But but these people who were supposed to be rebuilding it, they had nothing in comparison with him. So how are they going to build anything like that kind of a a majestic building? Well, God says, I'm going to shake the nations and release their wealth, uh, release what they desire so much, in order to make sure that it happens. And actually, that's exactly what did happen, because um, the, the, the book of Ezra uh, tells us that the, the, the people were reminded that King Cyrus, uh, he, he was the Persian king who had allowed God's people to return to Jerusalem, he'd actually decreed that the temple be rebuilt and that the costs would be paid for out of the Persian royal treasury. And, and not only that, but he decreed that all the treasures that had been taken from the temple in the first place by the Babylonians were returned. And, and that is what happened. You see, God was indeed going to do this. He, he was shaking the nations in order to build the temple uh, so that it was glorious again and, and so that it reflected something of the glory of the Lord again. Uh, and with the result, look, end of verse 9, that in this place I will give Peace, declares the Lord of hosts. In other words, the temple back then was the place where peace with God could be found. You know, you you came and offered sacrifices that allowed forgiveness of sins to take place and peace with God uh, to to be established. You know, you might go to the the Jerusalem B&Q to get the paneling for your houses. We were thinking about that last week. But you went to the temple to find forgiveness and peace. That's where you went. And now that temple was being rebuilt. You see, God was not thwarted in his purposes. He wasn't thwarted by people's poverty or by their inability or by their circumstance or by any opposition that they might face. No, God will achieve his purposes. But there's more than that here because you could read about what God did do back then and think, well, that's just ancient history. You know, that's what God did back then. But what help is that for me now? But actually, friends, it's hugely helpful for us now because this this prophecy here is is signposting us towards something else. Because if you notice, look in verse 9, it says that the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. Do you see that? Which isn't strictly true, Um, regardless of the, the Persian investment um, in, the, in the rebuilding of the temple. Actually, the new temple was never on a par with Solomon's temple. 
But that's because this verse was always pointing us forward to its ultimate fulfillment in the days of the Lord Jesus. See that phrase in verse 7, the treasures of all nations will come or the desires of all nations will come. That's often been understood as a pointer to the Lord Jesus. You might remember that old Christmas carol. Uh, we often sing uh, angels from the realms of glory. Has that has that line in it. Wise men, leave your contemplations. Brighter visions shine afar. Seek the great desire of nations. You have seen his natal star. That's just one example of, of, a, of a, where a Christian has seen in, in that verse a signpost to the Lord Jesus that actually he is the ultimate desired one. He's, he's the epitome, the center of, of all that is to be desired. He's the only one able to, to satisfy and keep satisfying the, the longings of, of the world. And of course, he is the new temple. As, as we've reminded ourselves already in this series, it's the Lord Jesus who has fulfilled in his body all that the temple was supposed to do in the Old Testament. Uh, the, the temple, of course, was the place where, where God and people could meet and, and find forgiveness But now that Jesus has come, it's in him where that is fully and finally true. He is the new temple. He said it in John 2, didn't he? We quoted it last week. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it again. And then they mocked him. You can't build a temple in three days, Jesus. You're having a laugh. But John says he was talking about his body. In other words, Jesus is the new glorious temple. Jesus is the latter temple. That will be greater than the former one. He is the place where we find peace with God forever. Do do, do you remember that after Jesus died for our sins on the cross and then rose again three days later? Do you remember his first words when he appeared to his disciples in the upper room after his resurrection? Peace be with you. See, Jesus is the, the new temple where we can meet with God and find forgiveness and peace with God through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus on the cross. So these verses are, are certainly pointing us forward to the Lord Jesus, aren't they? As the, as the ultimate fulfillment of, of what the temple was only ever a, a, a foreshadowing of, a pointer to. But you know, there's even more than that here, of course, because there is a future fulfillment here as well. That phrase in verse 6 about God shaking the heavens and the earth. That, that is cited uh, in several places, but cited uh, specifically in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, Hebrews 12, 26, to talk about God's final judgment. So, so to those Hebrew Christians uh, that, that he was uh, writing to who are also battling discouragement, also tempted to give up, um, that the writer says that there will come a time when God will shake the heavens and the earth. Remember that? But this time he's not doing this shaking to get his temple built, but actually to bring about final judgment. He's shaking the heavens and the earth until all that remains is the new heavens and the new earth. In fact, the the, the passage goes on to to say that, that, that the only part of the universe that will survive that great shaking is the kingdom that cannot be shaken. In other words, God's kingdom, his people. But those who have come to him through Christ, the new temple, for forgiveness and for life and for, for peace with God forever. Do you see, friends, it's not only that, that God will not give up on his people, 
But he will not give up on his purposes. His eternal purposes for his people will not be thwarted. They won't. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And that is the eternal purpose of God. And he won't give up on it. You know, we might look at the church and think it's hopeless. It's never going to do what God wants it to do. But God looks at the church and says, my eternal purposes for my church will not be thwarted. I will not give up on my church, but I will build my church. And I'll build it around the Lord Jesus. And I'll bring glory to his name through it. So, friend, I don't know how you're feeling this morning. But it could be that you're feeling discouraged. It could be that you've been feeling so discouraged that you feel like giving up on the Christian life. Or it could be that you're wondering about whether to even begin the Christian life but because you're worried that if you did, you'd never be able to keep it up. Well, friends, the great news of this passage is the reminder that whatever we're feeling, whatever the struggles we're facing, whatever the sin that we're battling, God will never give up on his people and he'll never give up on his purposes until he's gathered all of his people to the Lord Jesus Christ in the eternal kingdom that can never be shaken. Great reminder from God's word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much uh, for, the, uh, for the comfort, for the assurance of this passage that, that even when we are tempted to give up on you, you will never give up on, on either your people or your purposes. So would you please help us, help us to be strong in the light of your promise and your presence so that we may not give up because you will build your church for the glory of your name. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.